All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word to Matthew 24 this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we're thankful we had this time together. We're thankful that we can focus upon your word, that it is alive and powerful, and that it is your word who pierces into our soul to expose that which is uh, from the sin nature, that which is wrong, that which is evil, to expose the false ideas, the false concepts that we have, that we might have our thinking transformed by your word, that you might use that and your purpose to conform us in terms of our character and our persons to the, to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, our purpose here is to be prepared for service, to be prepared to be witnesses, to be prepared to live our spiritual life, to face the various issues and challenges, both intellectual as well as personal, that we confront on a daily basis, that we may think as you think and that we may reflect that in our actions, our views, our opinions, and the things that we do. Father, we pray that you would challenge us from your word today. Help us to understand these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing our study of the Olivet Discourse, which is the most extensive uh, teaching and instruction that our Lord Jesus Christ gave on future things, what is known theologically as eschatology from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last and last things, and uh, logos for the study of or knowledge about something or the words about something. So uh, eschatology is the focus here, and there's quite a bit here in these in these uh, two chapters of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. And just as we're going to spend probably two or three more weeks on the first part of Matthew chapter 25 because of its significance as a, as a, as Jesus' message, it gives a framework for understanding uh, revelation, understanding much of biblical prophecy. But starting down in verse 32, we're going to shift gears. And one of the significant aspects of that, I believe, it's still talking about future things. It's still talking about what will take place in the tribulation. It is still focused upon the Jewish people and Jewish believers and the warning there. But there are many dispensationalists and there are many uh, Christians who think that aspects of that relate to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and church age believers today. And we need to spend some time understanding what the issues are there, because that, uh, that that causes a lot of problems and a lot of confusion. So part of the responsibility of a pastor is to, in his teaching, is to help the congregation understand how to read the Bible so that when you're reading your Bible through once a year, that you can read intelligently and you can correlate passages from Old Testament and New Testament to what you know. Now, none of us know all these things thoroughly. I certainly don't. Um, and I've spent a little more time on this than y'all have. But uh, it's important for you to understand what the issues are so that red flags will pop up. Well, maybe they won't pop. Maybe they'll just sort of wiggle a little bit. Hopefully, they'll pop more for some of you than others, but that's the goal. So, this morning, as we're moving along, we're going to look at this first section in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. And this is defined at the end of verse 8 as the beginning of sorrows, an important 
phrase that we have to understand that this is the beginning of sorrows or the word there actually isn't the word for sorrow it's the word for uh, labor pains it's the word for uh, it's often translated birth pangs but I find that term to be a little bit antiquated it's labor pains and labor pains don't take place during the entire period of pregnancy I know most women are very grateful for that they only come at the end as an immediate sign that the birth is going to happen very soon, at least compared to the other nine months. So in terms of the context, Jesus has left the temple where he's announced judgment upon the temple that no stone would be left upon another. He walks across the Kidron Valley and takes a seated position on the far side, which is the position a rabbi would take when he was going to teach. I don't know where we lost that idea, but sometimes I think that would be nice just to be able to sit and not to stand through uh, through the message. Although I think that standing gives you a little more energy than just sitting. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, and we read in uh, Mark this morning that it was specifically four that came and spoke to him, James and John, Peter and Andrew. And they said, tell us, when will these things be and when will be the, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And we've looked at this in the last couple of weeks and said that this actually is two questions. The first is, when will these things be? That, that these things there relates back to the destruction of the temple. So question number one is, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When is that going to be fulfilled? This prophecy you just gave, and that's the near fulfillment, as I taught, to authenticate uh, Jesus' prophecy according to the standards in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. And second question, what will be the sign? It's got an article there, and it's a singular. It's not the signs of the time, something you often hear and read too much by people who don't pay attention to the details of the text. Uh, it is the sign of your coming. And as I pointed out last time, this really relates um, further on to Matthew 24, chapter 30. Uh, the sign of your coming and the end of the age are linked tightly together by the grammar. They're not synonymous. It's not a Granville Sharp rule for those of you who understand that. It is linking them, though, in a very tight association so that one results in the other. His coming brings about the end of the age. In Jewish thought, there was this present age, and then there was the future messianic age. And so they are thinking in terms of the kingdom. Now, what is the message of Matthew? It's the kingdom. The kingdom. You've got to keep your eye on that ball. I think this is one of the reasons you have so many different opinions about Matthew 24 is that we get our eye off the ball that Matthew is writing in relation to his thesis. If you've ever written a master's thesis, if you've ever, just golly, in 7th or 8th grade, if you ever had to write a, a short paper that had a topical sentence, you're supposed to only present information related to your topical sentence or related to your thesis. Anything else is superfluous and unnecessary. So writers of Scripture stick to their uh, stick to their thesis. In some cases, they state their thesis, uh, theses more specifically than in others, but Matthew is clearly the gospel related to the kingdom and the presentation of the king. And so it is, it, all of this must be understood in terms of that purpose. And so they're asking for the sign. In verse 30, Jesus says, then. And we're going to see that this is an important word, the word then. It indicates some progression in time. Then the sign. So it's following other things that he has said. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's the sign, is what appears in the heavens. It's not all of these other things that lead up to it contextually. They're not referred to as, as signs. So of these two questions, then Matthew and Mark answer the second. They don't address the first. They don't give details about the near fulfillment, which is the destruction of the temple, which occurred in AD 70 when the Roman armies uh, destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. 
The reason Matthew doesn't address that is that doesn't have anything to do with what? The kingdom. Okay, it's superfluous information. He wants to focus on that which is important, to br- which brings about the coming of the kingdom. He tells us a lot more than any of the other gospel writers of what Jesus said in relationship to his coming, which will establish the kingdom. So that's our framework for understanding that. Now, as a foundation for this, as I keep indicating, we have to understand, and I've added a fourth point here, to understand the background. Jesus is talking to them as Jews about Jewish prophecy. He's not talking to them as church-age believers because it's not the church age yet. Okay, it is still the age of Israel. There has been no instruction whatsoever up to this point about the church. In fact, I think there's only one place in Matthew where ecclesia is used technically to refer to the church. Generally, it's a word that refers to assembly. And so when Matthew is talking about when there are problems, somebody offends you, take it to the assembly, he's not talking about the church. That's just a general word, and I think in that context it's talking about the synagogue. But uh, when he's talking to to Peter and he says, uh, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Uh, On this rock, I will build my church. That's the only technical term. Now, what did he tell them about the church at that point? Only that, A, it's future, because it's a future tense verb, and, B, Jesus is going to build it, not them. That's all they know. And other than that, they're just kind of going, what's this? It's not clear. There's no content that's been given to the disciples yet about the church. So, the Olivet Discourse, then, is... The last thing Jesus says up to the Jews about Israel. He hasn't, isn't saying anything about the church. Nothing, so point three, nothing in the Olivet Discourse is about church age believers or has direct application to church age believers. But it has implications for us to understand the plan and purposes of God in terms of future things. And then fourth, this is what I added this week, is all living church-age believers will be raptured. We won't be here during these events that are described in Matthew 24 or 25. It does not have the church in view because we are taken to heaven in the event that is known as the rapture. And we will be taken in an instant, in the blink of an eye, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and we will be with the Lord. Uh, a couple of different verses are important here. 1 Thessalonians 4:15 and following. Paul says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain. Who's he talking about? The dead or those who are alive? Very simple. He's talking about living church-age believers. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now he brings in those who are dead in Christ. Or maybe they're asleep in Christ, like some on the back row. Um, asleep is just a euphemism for believers who have died. It's not talking about soul sleep. That's a heretical doctrine from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then he's going to explain the dynamics of this in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven... Three things happen. There's a shout, there's the voice of the archangel, and there's a trumpet of God. So there are, there are sound effects. And instantly, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's those who are asleep. Technically, that's not the rapture. You've heard that by probably a lot of people who didn't pay enough attention to the text. The dead in Christ will rise first. That's not the word for rapture. That's the word for resurrection. Then, a subsequent event separated by a nanosecond. Then, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. There's the verb harpazo, which was translated into a Latin 
into the Latin Vulgate with the word from which we get our English word rapture. So there'll be somebody you'll hear who'll say, rapture is not in the Bible anywhere. And they'll say, well, you're reading the wrong Bible, wrong language. Go read the Latin and you'll find the Latin word for rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Those who are harpazoed are those who are alive and remain. So technically, the rapture just refers to those who are still alive at the time. The others are resurrected. We who are alive are harpazoed together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So even though it's subsequent, it's such a minute amount of time that they can be spoken of as happening uh, together. And that's what shall always be with the Lord. Now, some people think, well, all this eschatology stuff is just, that's off in the distance. I got problems in my life right now. I got to deal with what's going on in my life. And that let, let prophecy take care of itself. Uh, the problem is the very next verse says, comfort one another. With these words, eschatology is designed to be a comfort to all of us so that we can understand what's going to happen when we die and what future things are going to be and whether or not we're going to be here for some of the horrific things that are described in prophecy. Another verse that we should be reminded of is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Just the second part. I've gone through this. You can go back and listen to the lesson on it. But that that clause, that because clause at the beginning of verse 10, grammatically in Greek belongs to the previous verse. Unfortunately, they split the verses at the wrong spot. And it doesn't belong to the second. Um, Jesus isn't saying to John, I also will keep you out of the hour of trial because you've kept my command. That's not what he's saying that because you've kept my command is related to the previous verse. So the period should come there at the end, after persevere, end of sentence, and then the next sentence reads, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And in the book of Revelation, as we studied, the term earth dweller, those who dwell on the earth, is a reference to the unbelievers who are left on the earth after the rapture. Those who continue in negative volition and don't accept the gospel stay as earth dwellers. Those who accept the gospel become believers. So this is a test that comes upon the whole world, but there are those church-age believers who are kept from that hour of trial. So as we look at this, then, we realize Jesus is answering this this second question, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he's going to build to it. He's going to give additional information. He doesn't just jump down to verse 30. He gives uh, background information as to what else is going on. This is where we get into some interesting things related to understanding and interpreting prophecy. And last time I went over this, and I said that there are three broad views historically as to how to interpret prophecy. The first is, they, they just, these are fancy words for past, present, and future. We don't need to talk about preterism. That means they, they basically believe all of Matthew 24 and most of Revelation 4 through uh, 20 was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But historicism has been a very, very popular, dominant way of interpreting these prophetic passages all through the church age. And the idea was that you could look out at different times in history and see certain things taking place and say, ah, that's Revelation 8. That's Revelation 9. That's Revelation 10. Now, historically, when dispensationalism began to be uh, uh, organized, systematized, and thought through first by John Nelson Darby from the 1830s to the 1880s, uh, later by uh, other uh, prophecy teachers, uh, in the late 19th century and into the 20th century, most notably people like William Blackstone in his book, Jesus is Coming, uh, who was the uh, figure behind what was known as, a, as, a, as the Blackstone um, Memorial, which called upon, which was signed by all the major uh, 
industry names, Rockefeller, Carnegie, many, many others, all the members of Congress and the Senate all signed this, and it was a document that said, we affirm that the Jews have a right to be returned to their historic homeland in Israel. It preceded um, Theodore Herzl, the father of Jewish Zionism, by about eight or ten years, uh, so that uh, it is thought by some that he was the real founder of modern Zionism, not not Herzl, which is always a surprise when I tell my Jewish friends that because they never heard of Blackstone, they never heard of Christian Zionism, uh, they only heard heard about about Herzl. Uh, but that uh, gets off into another subject. What happened with the rise of dispensationalism is they they began to recognize that these things were all future. This shift to futurism began to occur in the 1700s, realizing all this is future. We're not living within the period of Matthew 24 or within the period of Revelation 4 to 19. But unfortunately, that dominated all of the literature. So people that came along like Schofield and Chafer and later Walverd and the early years of Dallas Seminary, you had a lot of people who, when they would go read anything on the Olivet Discourse or on Revelation, they read a lot of stuff that was historicist in its implications. And so sort of like somebody crawling out of a mud pit with their waders on, they still had a lot of that guck stuck to their waders. And so as you go through the last 150 years, you can trace a a gradual development in our understanding of, of these prophetic passages that gets away from trying to identify certain events as signs of the time. But we still have these very popular prophecy teachers in radio Bible classes, people like like Hal Lindsey and, to some degree, Tim LaHaye, John Hagee, and any number of others who look out on the scene and when they see wars or they see the rise of diseases like HIV and AIDS or they see uh, some massive earthquake, they say, these are signs of the times. Jesus is getting closer. See, what's happened here is they are still influenced to some degree by historicism. But this is typical. I've put a summary for you on the website that will be linked on the little panel with this lesson in it so that you can see the differences here. It's really kind of interesting. I'm not going to go through all of them this morning. I don't think Sunday morning is the right place to do that. But what you find is a certain number of people, theologians, who will look at what happens here, Jesus' description from verse 4 down through verse 14, and they will say that represents the trends in the church age. That was Chafer's view. That was Walverd's view. His students like uh, Hal Lindsey, uh, Pastor Theme, a number of others, followed that view, and they tended to put the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments into the second half of the tribulation, and they said, well, these wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, that's all, you see that all through the church age. My question is, didn't you see those all through the Old Testament as well? There were earthquakes, massive earthquakes in the Old Testament period, there were uh, there were diseases, there were wars. All of these things have all gone on through history. So how do you distinguish the kinds of wars today or earthquakes or pestilences from those of, of the period before Christ? Well, they're reported more. Well, that's not what this is talking about. We have instruments that can measure earthquakes. They're more sensitive, so we have more earthquakes. No, we don't. I'll give you some data before we get done. I've also posted a couple of papers uh, with this that are in-depth studies of earthquake frequency in the 20th century, one of which was written um, by Steve Austin, who knows something about both dispensationalism and geology and does a great job demonstrating that. So we'll look at that. So this is what's happened And as we go through this, just as a graphic, historicism sees fulfillment all through the church age. 
and dispensationalists have been influenced to some degree from from that, and those people I just mentioned uh, were influenced that that way. I'll talk about that a little bit more. We we are futurists, and I try to be as consistent a futurist as I possibly can be because consistency isn't the hobgoblin of little minds. It's the key to accurate interpretation. And then uh, I'm not going to talk about preterism. So when we get into understanding what Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about that period which we know as the great as the tribulation. It is also known as um, Daniel's seventy weeks, and so I'm going to put this up here as just a time frame that it's a seven year period. Daniel had a prophecy that there would be four hundred and ninety periods, or, or excuse me, seventy periods of seven decreed as a timeline for his people from the time that uh, that they were decreed, given a decree to go back and rebuild the city, rebuild its fortifications. And so we can date that to the time of Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. And from that time until the cutting off of Messiah would be uh, seven years before the end. So that would be uh, 483 years. So you take the 70 periods of seven, that was actually 490 years, and you lop off seven. The Messiah is cut off after the 483rd year. And the 483rd year ended just when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. And then there's an interval clearly in the text that the Messiah appears after the end of that 483rd. And then it picks up again talking about the last seven-year period. It's indicated by the coming prince who signs a covenant with Israel. And it ends with the return of the Messiah and Daniel indicates that there is a period there where at the midpoint where the prince who is to come will desecrate the temple. Another way that we can divide this, and I didn't get all of this animated, but we'll put it like this. Okay, the Daniel 70 weeks is also referred to in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. The fact that it's Jacob's trouble indicates its primary purpose is for Israel. It's not a time designated where the primary purpose is for the Gentiles. It's primarily for what God is doing in bringing the Jewish nation to recognize the, the Messiah. The first part in Matthew 24, verse 8, is described as the beginning of labor pains. That's really important when you read through this. When he talks about wars and rumors of wars, he's not talking about... The Napoleonic Wars, he's not talking about the Civil War, he's not talking about the Spanish-American War and World War I and World War II and um, Operation Desert Storm. He's talking about global catastrophic wars that occur at the first part of the Tribulation. These are signs. Those other wars don't distinguish themselves at all from any other wars going all the way back into the Old Testament. For it to be a sign, it's unique. A true global war, even World War II, wasn't a truly global war in the sense that these are going to be truly global wars and, and other events. But Jesus says these are only the beginning of the labor pains. Now that term for labor pains is really important from the Old Testament because it's connected to something called the Day of the Lord. And we'll reference some passages related to, to the Day of the Lord, and maybe I'll get a chance to talk about that. But the Day of the Lord is an Old Testament term for a visitation of divine judgment. But many of the passages relate to this end-time judgment. And Jesus says, after he talks about the first part, but the beginning of labor pains, and then in verse 14 he says, then... Excuse me, I have that cited wrong there. Um, he says, then uh, the end uh, will come. Okay? Then the end will come. Matthew 24, uh, 14, the end is not yet. And then then the in, there's increased labor pains, the second half, and then the end, end will come. Matthew 24, that's not 14, that's, in, um, that's back in verse... Verse seven, the end. Or excuse me, at the end of verse six, that reference is wrong. Matthew twenty four six, but the end is not yet. 
the quote's correct, the verse is wrong, it's 24-6, but the end is not yet. So there's this first part, but the end isn't yet. In the second part, there's increased labor pains, then the end will come. Okay, so it's clearly making a distinction there, and that tells us that both the first part and second part relate to this uh, tribulation period. And then we get to Matthew 24:15, and we read, "Therefore, when you see," and that's really marked off in the text. It is a clear. Uh, uh, the vocabulary indicates a a real shift in talking, the, the the drawing of a conclusion. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So that's clearly talking about the uh, second half of the tribulation. Now, what we see, if you look at the document that I posted, is a number of people, quite a few, will take this as a marker that from verse 15 on, we're talking about the second half of the tribulation. That's true. But then they say what we cover before that is the first half of the tribulation. And it's sort of interesting how that goes. You have those I mentioned earlier, and they'll take verses 4 to 14 as referring to general signs that go through all of the present church age. And then it sort of narrows. Uh, Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in the 30s and 40s in Chicago, uh, was also a Bible teacher at Dallas Seminary, and he said only 4 through 8 represent general signs that are in the church age, but 9 through 14 are specific events that occur within the tribulation. So that narrows a little bit. Then you have people like Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Stan Toussaint who will take only 4 through 6 or 4 through 5 um, excuse me, 4 through 6 that's their dividing point. 4 through 6 as the general signs and then 7 on as specific signs within the tribulation. They have slightly different views. Uh, Fruchtenbaum will att- attempts to identify these signs with World War One, World War Two, and various other things. See, that's the influence of historicism. Uh, Toussaint comes along. He's much more consistent with the argument because he actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on the kingdom as the argument for Matthew, and he's he's done more work on this that issue than anyone else. But he too. Uh, has a view that where he sees certain uh, general signs in verses uh, four through six that relate to the relate to the church age. Um, then, when it comes to pure futurist interpretations, there is one view. This was Dr. Ryrie's view that all of four through fourteen are futurist. That's the first half, and then the second half starts in fifteen where I'm saying, no, that's wrong, and I'm not the only one who says that. Uh, people like Dwight Pentecost, Lou, Lou Barbieri in his commentary on Matthew in the Bible Knowledge Commentary set, uh, Reynolds Showers, who wrote the theology and doctrine articles for uh, uh, Israel My Glory for many years, who uh, sadly now has Alzheimer's. Uh, he just... They just released a book that he had done or that somebody completed for him on the Olivet Discourse. John Hart, who retired from Moody, all take the same view that I'm taking here. I think it's the one that's most consistent with with the language. And this is the view that sees the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week being described in 4 through 8. This is the beginning of sorrows. This is talking about unique circumstances in the church age. The second three and a half years is then described in verses 9 through 14. Notice 9 begins very significantly with the word, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Who's the you? Jesus is talking to the disciples as Jews. The first half of the tribulation, Israel is in a peace treaty with the Antichrist. They're not being persecuted yet. 
It's not until the abomination of desolation halfway through that it all starts to break loose. And you have the, the treaty is broken by the Antichrist and the Jews are persecuted. He, Daniel says he stops the daily sacrifices. And so starting from verse 9 through 14, we have a negative description of the persecution that will come upon the Jews. So the second three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week is it covers 9 through 12, and that's increased persecution of Jews after the Antichrist breaks his covenant. Then in verse 15, we have a therefore, and you say, well, 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 Robbie, what it says there is then the abomination of desolation. That's halfway through. Why do you say that the halfway point occurred in verse 9? Because if you remember the way Jewish history is written in a narrative, they often give you the overview, like Genesis 1, you cover the first seven days, and then Moses comes back, and in Genesis 2, he describes what happens on the sixth day. It gets more specific. This fits Jewish narrative style. Jesus summarizes the whole period, the first three and a half years, the second three and a half years, and then he comes back, and starting in verse 15, he's going to tell them how they can avoid what they need to do to avoid that persecution in the first half. So this whole period is described as the day of the Lord. Zechariah 14 is one passage. There are some others. So let me just point out some structural things that you need to pay attention to. First of all, several times in the passage you have the word English word then. It's added in the New King James a couple of places. For example, in verse 11, it says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There's no then in the Greek text, so you can just draw a line through that. But this word then shows progression of time, that Jesus is talking chronologically through this period of time. Matthew 24, 4, he says, uh, begins describing the first half. He says, Take heed that no one deceives you. All these, that is everything he describes between Four and eight are the beginning of sorrows. Then, and, and next, in verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you. That word, then, indicates the next step in, term, in time. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Where do false prophets come? United States of America, we're in the church age. You don't have prophets. Prophets is an Old Testament term. This is talking to Jews as Jews. False prophets isn't talking about Benny Hinn. <laughs> false prophets are talking about false prophets in a Jewish context. A, that always has a Jewish overtone. We're talking to Jews as Jews. They're not going to understand false prophets as somebody going to Greece or going to Egypt or going someplace else. They're talking about what will happen in Israel in the second half of the tribulation. You have the rise of these false prophets and, and false messiahs. And who's going to end up there? The Antichrist and the false prophet are the chief among many. Okay, then verse 11 says, just says, and many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So that's the significance of this, this uh, word, Tote in the Greek, translated then, bidag, the Greek lexicon says, it is used to introduce that which follows in time. It's a chronological marker. Okay, so what happens after that, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. He's talking to them as Jews. The Gentiles are going to hate you. Anti-Semitism is going to go off on steroids, and it's going to make uh, the contemporary Muslims and, and the Nazis look like wannabes. It's going to be open season on Jews in the second half of the tribulation. Jesus describes it, Then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. I'll get to this next time. Gospel of the kingdom isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. It includes it. 
But it goes back to the gospel of the kingdom was what John the Baptist preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His disciples, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It's an announcement of the kingdom. Now that includes trusting in Jesus as Messiah who died for your sins. But it's more than that. It is because the kingdom is about to come. And then he says in, in verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea... Uh, flee to the mountains. Okay, the important word there is to f- track the chronology that comes after that. Then there will be great tribulation, as mentioned in verse uh, verse 21. This is after. Uh, this is in the details that are given on the uh, second half of the tribulation. There will be great tribulation. Now, I'm telling you, Dr. Walbert also thought, taught and has influenced Mitty to say that the great tribulation is a technical term for the second half. I don't think it's used as a technical term here. He just, Jesus is just saying then it's going to intensify. The tribulation is going to get worse. The term is used one other time. It's in Revelation 7. And it's talking about the the mass of martyrs who are killed in the first are in in the first seal judgments, and it says and, and the angel says these are those who came out of the great tribulation. If great tribulation means the second half, see Walbert made that error error. That's why he threw all three seal judgments into the second. I mean, all three judgments, seal, trumpet, and bowls into the second half, is because of a bad exegetical decision which is confused many. So that's the, that's the first point, is we have to pay attention to the chronology within the text. Second, the four in verse seven is important. I mentioned that both, although they take slightly different positions, both Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Stan Toussaint, who, by the way, had a bad stroke just right after the last pre-trib conference. Uh, he can't speak. He's doing better but we need to continue to pray for uh, Dr. Toussaint. He was one of my favorite professors at Dallas. He has held the line. He's a great guy and um, really struggling. He had polio as a child, and it was coming back on him as post-polio syndrome in, in recent years. I tried to get him to come as a speaker, but he had to quit going out uh, to speak because of that. But we need to pray for him. Anyway, both of those men, who are great scholars, divided between verse 6 and verse 7. When they said that 4 through 6 is general trends of the church age, 7 and on is not. The problem with that is verse 7 begins with this word for. In the Greek it's a gar and it is explaining the verse before. So you can't put verse 6 to describe one thing and verse 7 to describe something else when verse 7 is an explanation of verse 6. Okay? So... Uh, verse 6 is about wars and rumors of wars and verse 7 explains what they're going to be like nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom and then adds additional information there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places these are famines, pestilences and earthquakes unlike any we have ever seen both Daniel and in this passage Matthew describes the second half of the uh, uh, describes the tribulation, this, this day of the Lord, as unlike any period in human history. We can't even imagine the horrors of this. So, third thing to point out when you read this is the phrase in Matthew 24, 6, but the end is not yet, indicating that he is talking about something close to the end, but it's not yet. Matthew 24, 8 says that these are the beginning of sorrows, not the beginning of the church age, but the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of the labor pains. Labor pains come at the end. And then verse 9, then they will, the then there is, is in the, in the Greek, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. So that tells us that there's a period before that's where Israel is safe and then the period that comes after. So what we see here under point four is that Matthew 24, 4 through 8 describes the first half of the tribulation. And Matthew 24, 9 to 14 describes the second half of the tribulation. And the second half focuses on the intensified hostility toward Jews and Israel uh, during that second half of the trib. 
it's going to get really bad. That's when the Antichrist desecrates the temple. Everybody has to worship him. And this is when Jesus is going to warn them. He describes in verses 9 through 14 all the horrors. And then in verse 15, he says how to get away from it. When you see this happen, you immediately flee to the mountains. That's verse five, uh, That's point five. A hard break occurs there at 24.15 when Jesus says, Therefore, when? He's going back and giving a different approach to that second half than what he gave in verses 9 through 14. He's providing the solution for Israeli-based, not for some Jewish believer living in Houston, Texas. Doesn't say when you see these signs flee to the mountains. It's a long way to the mountains. Unless you're over on East Mount Houston Road, I'm still trying to find the mountain that's there. <laughs> this is talking about Jews living in Jerusalem and Judea. It's very clear. When you see these things happen, get out of Dodge. So, let's run through these verses quickly. We've understood most of it. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. The word for take heed is a, word, a Greek word blepo, which means to watch, to pay attention to something, to stay alert, be careful to watch for these things. He's warning them, and he says that no one deceives you. There's going to be massive deception through all of the tribulation period. In verse 4 and 5, he repeats this. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. In verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. He's talking to them as Jews. This is going to happen in Israel. may happen in other parts of the world, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about this is specifically targeting uh, Israel and Jews. Verse 11 In the second half of the tribulation, this intensifies. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. They will actually cause many to follow them. Verse 24, for false Christ, false messiahs, and false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. They're real signs and wonders. They're not coming from God. See, the Bible clearly says that through the power of Satan... They can, uh, false prophets can heal. The Antichrist will heal. He will perform real miracles, but they are not from God. The, that's why you can't follow after people who claim to heal. Even if they did heal somebody, what does Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 13 says, even if the false prophet signs come true, they're given to you to test whether you will obey the Lord your God. Are you going to put the word of God over experience? So you go to Benny Hinn and he, you know, waves his magic wand and you jump up and walk out or you see somebody jump up and walk out of their wheelchair and and God said, and maybe they really do. I had one lady swore up and down that she was cured from cancer. I said, great. Went to Deuteronomy 13. Jesus gave you that experience to see if you're going to believe the experience over his word. His word says that's not what you think it is. She didn't care like most people today. They prefer experience over the truth of God's word. So then we have this important phrase here that this is the beginning of labor pains. That relates it in Isaiah 13, 6 to 13, which you can read later, or Jeremiah 36 to 7. That's the passage that talks about uh, the time of Jacob's, Jacob's trouble. Those are connected contextually to the day of the Lord. That tells us something important, that the whole seven-year period of the tribulation is identified uh, intertextually with the day of the Lord. That's very important to understand. We'll come back and tie a knot on that later. This fit with what Jesus is teaching, fit with Jewish expectation at the time. Raphael Petai, in what was probably his doctoral dissertation, in a work called The Messianic Text, where he goes through all sorts of intertestamental uh, Jewish documents, concludes the idea, that is, in ancient Judaism, became entrenched that the comings of the Messiah will be preceded by greatly increased suffering. This will last seven years, and then, unexpectedly, the Messiah will come. That idea was already there. Um, another author, 
well, I didn't write in here. Uh, this would be, uh, I forgot his name right now, but another author writing about the middle, uh, this, this early period in Jewish eschatology said, a prominent feature of Jewish eschatology as represented by the rabbinic literature was the time of trouble preceding Messiah's coming. It was called the birth pangs of the Messiah, sometimes more briefly translated the messianic woes. So there's obviously a time of expectation in the intertestamental period and an understanding of certain facets of the future that were, were correct. Isaiah 13.8 talks about this phrase, the beginning of birth pangs, and says uh, people will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows, that's labor pains and sorrows, will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. This will be a horrific time, terrible time. Only way to escape it is to trust in Christ as Savior. We will avoid. That doesn't mean we're going to, we, we as church age believers avoid all suffering or all persecution. Certainly church history has witnessed horrific examples of the persecution uh, of believers. We can go back to the Protestant Reformation. You can go to the uh, Reformation in England and, and the hundreds that were burned alive at the stake by, uh, uh, Mary Tudor, uh, who was uh, referred to as Bloody Mary. You can go right now to, to northern Syria and northern Iraq, and, and tens of thousands of Christians are being slaughtered for their faith, and they're being tortured for their faith. So the rapture is not an escape from lowercase tribulation and suffering. It is to tell us that we will not be the recipients of the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God during the time of Daniel's 70th week. So next time we'll, we'll come back, we'll go a little further, talk a little bit more about some of these other things, get a little bit further down the road into the second half of the tribulation period. Father, we're thankful for your grace toward us, that there is grace before judgment throughout all of history. Noah preached for 120 years before the waters of the flood came. There have been many other examples in the Old Testament as you continue to send your prophets to Israel and then to Judah to warn them, to call them back, to turn back to you and to forsake their idolatry. Grace always precedes judgment. The church age is a lengthy period of grace, gospel preaching uh, to the lost, preceding this horrific judgment of this seven-year period. Father, there are many implications of this for our own uh, thinking as we work through what Jesus is saying, but we are reminded that we have been saved for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to proclaim the truth of the gospel to those who are lost. And when we understand what could happen, that the rapture could occur tomorrow, those left behind would go through the tribulation, that it adds an urgency to our own need to explain the gospel to those who don't understand it and those who are lost. Father, give us a heart, a desire to witness to others. Give us the, the, the words that we need. Help us to tra be trained and to think biblically that we can give an answer for the hope that is within us. Father, we pray that anyone listening to this message would realize that the only solution is trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to reform your life. It's simply a matter, the Bible says, of believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you will have eternal life. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word that we have, and we pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened by it. In Christ's name, amen.